From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, COVID-19 cases are surging in regions across the United States, while Vermont continues to see relatively low rates of infection. But there are still plenty of unknowns about the long-term trajectory of the coronavirus. All this week, we're running stories that explore the range of possibilities for the next several months of the pandemic, and looking at how healthcare systems, businesses, and public officials are preparing. Okay, you can see me live. I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. We are both working from our homes, I see. Yep. This is Dr. Richard Hopkins. Richard lives in Middlebury, where he's been quarantining with his wife since March. He's also a renowned epidemiologist and public health expert. Richard has worked for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and for state health departments in Montana, Colorado, Ohio, West Virginia, and most recently in Florida, where right now the virus is continuing to surge. I worked for the Florida Department of Health from 1990 until 2012, basically. So you've done the the reverse of the usual migration. I feel like most people are in Vermont and they end up in Florida. You've done the opposite. Well, you know, we said to people, there are all these empty moving trucks coming back from, from Florida. You know, it's cheap to get a space on a moving truck. Richard is now retired, but he's been continuing to track the spread of COVID-19 across the country. And he says that while the national trends may look alarming, the outbreaks in different regions are so unique that right now Vermonters don't have much reason to panic. We don't, I'm really glad that I'm retired. Um, this is a very stressful time to be working in public health. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's exciting, but it's stressful. You know, so I look at the state-by-state numbers. I look at some of the national numbers. I read some of the hundreds of publications that are coming out every day that are enabled, try to enable us to understand the epidemic better. I'm curious, as you're reading through all this material, what has been sticking out to you lately? What information do you think is most relevant for people given where we are in this stage of the epidemic? We know for individuals, um, the message hasn't changed a bit. Stay home if you're sick. Keep six feet away from people that are not part of your household. Wear a mask when you're in a place where you can't keep six feet of distance. Wash your hands when you come in the house. You know, those, those recommendations remain valid now, and they were valid in February, and they're still valid, and they're still important. Are there things that have changed? Are there things that you see us now in somewhat of a different phase of the development of all this? Then? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's really frustrating. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's frustrating to see how politicized the response to COVID-19 has become. Hmm. There are extraordinarily capable public health workers uh, who could explain what's going on and who could provide leadership and who are really not being allowed to do so. You know, the, the White House went through a period of time when it was all over COVID-19 and having daily press conferences. And then they figured out they weren't going to win, and so they stopped doing that. In both phases, both when they were having daily press conferences and then since then, they've really not allowed the public health experts to talk at a national level. And many governors have followed suit. And this, this is not new, it's just higher stakes, higher profile. In the first week's of the H1N1 influenza epidemic of the year 2009. I was interviewed by a radio reporter in the lobby of our building in Tallahassee. And he asked me, so how big is this epidemic going to be? How many people are going to get infected? And I said, we could have as many as 5 million people get infected just here in Florida out of 20 million. And he, he led with that, of course, in his story. Mm-hmm. 
And I wasn't allowed to talk to the press for months after that. Wow. Later, when we, when we went back and, and ran the numbers at the end of the epidemic to estimate how many people had been infected in Florida, there had, in fact, been just about 5 million infected people. Now, maybe I wasn't very smart about how I dealt with that interview, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, I was not allowed to talk to the press. And that kind of suppression of expertise has been going on, not just at the federal level, but at a lot of state health departments as well. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about it being unfortunate how politicized this has become. At the same time, I feel like given the economic stakes involved in doing these types of shutdown measures, whether there's any other way it could have gone, right? Like when these things are in conflict, you know, having businesses open versus the, the public health needs here, how could this have gone differently in your eyes? Well, public health is always political and as it should be. You know, you have a structure of scientists and physicians and public health experts that are running this public health agency, and they're human. They have perspectives. They have opinions. They try to be led by the data. And then you have typically a, a boss person, you know, a, a director of the state health department who was appointed by the governor, you know, and the director of the state health department takes what the experts tell her or him and then integrates that with other considerations. And you try to make a decision in, within the political system the, about how to set priorities. And, you know, I, I don't envy governors for the position that they've been in these last four or five months. You know, should you close schools? There are lots of implications to closing schools. Should you not close schools? How much do you close down your economy? What are the consequences? And how do we deal with this? And this is not new. At a much smaller level, most public health decisions have economic impacts. Hmm. So if you say, okay, we're going to uh, inspect restaurants four times a year and we're going to fail some of them, okay, and we're, and we're going to post the scores on the doors of the restaurants. Right, pretty standard stuff. You know, enlightened restaurant owners, of course, want this to happen, but there is a, there's a cost to the regulation, the short-term cost. Some people think the regulations are burdensome. Some think they're unnecessary. Some people think that you know, their insurance companies already require them to keep clean kitchens and the, the extra requirements imposed by the state are unnecessary and are just bureaucratic. Sure. So, I mean, at, at every kind of public health decision that you might want to make has economic implications and social implications. And it is proper that those other factors be considered. What's not proper is if the people who understand the data and understand the implications of very, the health implications of various decisions don't even get to the table. If they don't even get listened to, they don't even get a chance to present what they know and, what, and their predictions as to what will happen if various decisions are made. That's what's not acceptable. And those, you're saying those same tensions with COVID are playing out on a much broader scale with much higher stakes. Yeah, I mean, I've never been in a, I was never in a position during my working career to make a recommendation that was as drastic as these shutdowns have been during March and April and May. You know, I would not have wanted as a public health official to be making those decisions all by myself. You know, I would, prop, I would want them to be made by the governor and with the advice of the legislature. You know, the, the technical part that I'm the expert on uh, is not the only consideration that the decision makers should have. I, that's, that's proper. 
Right. And it seems like in some ways the decision about when to lift those measures and when to begin reopening things is equally, if not more challenging. Well, you know, when you see governors who are opening up their states at the same time when their case rates are rising rather than falling, that seems rather rather backwards. You know, the, the time to be open up your state, uh, as was done in Vermont, is at a time when the epidemic is, is quiescent. You know, and when it's clearly going away and perhaps gone away, then you can start to, to be able to back off from your restrictions. You do it carefully. Instead, we have states, Florida was one of them, where they said, oh, we're, we're not we're going to stop our lockdown. We're going to open up the state at a time when the, 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 the daily number of cases was in a rapid upswing already before they even took their, their liberalizing measures. Mm-hmm. I don't see how they can justify that. Yeah. You think our timing in Vermont was good? Yeah. No, no Vermont is not an island. I mean, if it, I, mean I, I don't mean that just metaphorically. I mean, New Zealand was able to eradicate COVID-19, essentially. And, you know, Vermont's in some ways kind of like New Zealand. You know, it's got mountains and got a fairly homogeneous population. And if Vermont were an island, we could have eradicated COVID-19 totally. As it is, we are, we are depending on the fact that the states around us, New York and Massachusetts and, and New, well, New Jersey is not right next to us, but that the states that had really intense epidemics have got them under control. And so the chances of people importing the virus into the state into our state are much reduced by the fact that our neighbors have also brought their epidemics under control. If we were sitting right next to Texas or Arizona, it would be much harder to prevent importations. One thing I find interesting about the moment that we're in is that here in Vermont, you know, we're consistently hearing from our public health officials and from our governor that the numbers are are about where we want them to be, that we can feel relatively safe uh, with uh, these reopening measures going through. At the same time, like you've said, in all these other states, cases have been surging. When we look at the national numbers, uh, they're still quite high. And there is just sort of a, a somewhat of an unsettling feeling, even though we know that within the boundaries of our state, things are under some degree of control here, to constantly be hearing the national messaging that things are trending in the other direction nationally always feels a bit unusual. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I'd be, I'd be interested to see what the governor does this week now that New York and New Jersey and Connecticut have said that people coming from the high incidence states have to quarantine themselves for 14 days. You know, just like we were saying that people from New York and New Jersey had to quarantine themselves when they came to Vermont, is Vermont going to follow New York and Connecticut and New Jersey's lead? Are there people from Texas who are going to go and vacation in the Adirondacks and now that they'll have to quarantine themselves in the Adirondacks, instead they'll come to Vermont? You know, maybe if you're somebody who runs a chalet somewhere, that would be appealing to you. But we, you know, we don't really want the Texans and the Arizonans who would have gone to the Adirondacks to come to Vermont instead, I don't think. But I'll, you know, I don't know what the governor's going to decide. I could see that a regional approach might make sense. What would a regional approach look like? What does that mean? I mean, Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey are already moving in lockstep on lots of matters. And the other states in New England are pretty much been following along. You know, we don't have to worry too much about what Quebec is doing because nobody can move back and forth between Vermont and Quebec anyway, right? unless you have a really strong reason. Right. And I, I share your curiosity about what the governor is going to do this week. I'm also curious more long term, when you look out at the next four to six months, what types of decisions are you going to be looking at? What types of trends or kind of what range of trends 
do you think we might be seeing as we look a little bit more long term here? I, you know, I really don't know. In Florida and Texas and Arizona and Oklahoma, Georgia, things are going to get worse over the next month or so before they get better. Even if they were to totally lock down those states tomorrow, which they're not going to do, but even if they did, it would take two or three weeks before the impact of that would be felt in reduced case rates. And I don't see any reason why the case rates shouldn't keep going up in those places over the next uh, month or so. You know, individuals may well act in those states even if their governors don't tell them to. Hmm. You know, so human behavior is going to change. There is going to be less face-to-face contact in Texas, even if government doesn't act. If you're looking out over four to six months, I think we're going to have ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs as people's behavior changes. And not all those behavior changes are going to be driven by government action. A lot of it's going to be driven by people just wanting to be safe. Yeah. And I I think your, I guess you can't see this in the recording, but the, the hand motion that you made that was sort of a series of ripples, I wanted to ask you about because part of the reason that we decided right now to kind of take a step back and look at the really big picture view here is because there's been a lot of chatter about the possibility of a second wave, even in some of the planning that's being done at the state level for things like schools opening in the fall and things like that. Sometimes that phrase gets thrown around. And I'm curious, one, how you would define that, and two, how you think that does or does not apply with this, or whether we even know. I don't think the concept of wave is a useful concept here. It was developed in the context of influenza, and influenza goes away in the summer, and it comes back in the fall. And in the 1918-1920 pandemic, there was intense disease in the winter, and then it went away in the summer mostly, and then it came back the following winter, and then it went away in the summer, and then it came back the following winter. It really wasn't over until 1920 or 21, sort of series of ripples. Influenza acts in waves. This disease does not seem to act in waves. I mean, even back in the spring, back in February and March, it was clear that the coronavirus was spreading vigorously in Australia, which was in the summer, and in South Africa, and in Argentina, and then in tropical areas in South America, and Brazil, and Peru, and Bolivia, Colombia. It was spreading very, very vigorously under hot, humid, tropical conditions. And there was no reason to think it would go away in the summer. And in fact, it's not going away in the summer. So this concept of a sort of a seasonal wave for the coronavirus, just it's not, it's not a useful concept. What we do have is we have a, a series of regional epidemics that are not very tightly articulated with each other. So you know, we had a northeastern urban epidemic involving New York and its suburbs and Massachusetts and New Jersey and Pennsylvania. A very intense disease in February, in March, April, into May. And it's you know, due to concerted social action, those epidemics are brought under control. And at the moment, at least, New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut and Vermont are enjoying very low levels of disease, while other parts of the country are enjoying, are experiencing very, very intense epidemics. And it's going to get worse. And there are, in some places, like uh, you can look at Virginia or look at Minnesota, there was a, a peak in April and then it never really went away. It stayed quite active for weeks at a time, and then it started going up again. Those are different patterns. Those are different outbreaks in different parts of the country. And trying to somehow shoehorn them into a, a wave concept doesn't help any, I don't think. Why do you think we have this tendency to look at things on a national level? You know, I, I feel like so often we are seeing 
here's what the case numbers are are doing nationally and here's what those trends look like. When you're saying that information doesn't really provide us with much useful data at all. You know, it's like uh, Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local. You know, all public health is local. <laughs> you know, I mean, the actual transmission events happen, you know, in people's homes and in people's workplaces and people's churches and so on, right where they are. I mean, it, it's all local. And then, you know, then you aggregate up all this local stuff and you get a regional picture and a national picture. And what's been going on for the last six weeks or so, and that, if you look at the national numbers, is that the case counts in the urban northeast have been going down and down and down and down, while case counts in the southwest were going up and up and up and up. And the net was a pretty much a flat national picture. But that national plateau was made up of, of the sum of something going up very fast and something going down very fast. That now what's happened is that the places that in the urban northeast that have gotten down close to zero, they don't have any further to go. So the rapid upswing in the, in the south and the southwest is not being balanced by a decrease elsewhere in the country anymore. It's what we're seeing at the national level is the effect of that big crescent of states across the south and southwest that are having big outbreaks. And those, like you said, those regional outbreaks, those regional epidemics are somewhat separate from each other. We shouldn't be sitting here in Vermont being too worried about what's happening in Georgia. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, each, each state, each region is a little different. Mississippi and Louisiana are not experiencing the same intense outbreaks that Arkansas and Alabama and Georgia are, hmm. and Oklahoma and Texas. I don't know why. If you go across from South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, they've all been very hot. And then Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas have been very hot. And then New Mexico, not. And then Arizona, Nevada, and Southern California have been very hot. And that's bleeding over into Oregon and Idaho and Utah, Montana even. If you sort of step back a little bit, it's really interesting to watch. If you're a public health official, it's a lot more than interesting. It's, it's very intense. Yeah, I can imagine. I want to come back to this idea that you talked about of the, these sort of cycles of behavior affecting the numbers in, in a certain way. Based on what you've seen in terms of the response here in Vermont, is that something that you're expecting we might see down the line is somewhat of a resurgence, even if it's a mild one, based on those kind of cyclical behavioral effects? Well, you know, I strongly suspect that people in Arizona are behaving differently now than they were three weeks ago. Because they're looking around and saying, oh my God, look how intense this outbreak is. Maybe I better actually wear my mask. Maybe I better you know, stay out of that bar. You know, maybe I should stay six feet away from my friends when I see them and not give them a big hug. You know, the recommendations haven't changed any. The legal environment probably hasn't changed any. But I'm sure that people are looking around at their environment saying, you know, I better be careful. And my kids better be careful. And the people around me need to be careful. You know, those are those messages haven't changed any, but people's compliance with them is likely to have changed. I wonder, you know, it seemed like compliance levels here in Vermont were pretty high when those measures were first rolled out. Now, you know, we are in the midst of these reopening steps. I'm curious, what might we see more locally in the next few months? What trends might we be looking for? As a friend of mine used to say, if I could answer a question like that, I could get rich on orange juice futures. <laughs> a, a friend of ours said the other day that the reason why we've gotten this virus under control in Vermont is that Vermonters are very good at social isolation, and they were good at it even before the epidemic. You know, that's facetious, but there may be some truth in that. Mm -hmm. 
I have to imagine the overall physical isolation plays a role too. I think the just looking at kind of our reader feedback and comments and questions that we get too. A concern though is that some of that goes out the window when you get into a tourist season like this and that there's a lot of fear and concern about that. And talking to you about all this, it sounds like you don't seem too worried about what's ahead. You seem pretty confident in how Vermont's been treating this. You know, I think Vermont has been doing an exemplary job. And I think we, at the moment, we're being protected by the fact that the states around us are doing well. Hmm. It would be really hard to Vermont to do this well if New York were back to where it was in April. Interesting. Or Massachusetts. Well, I have to say, talking to you about all this has been somewhat comforting, you know, to hear some confidence that at least regionally, it seems like we are in a pretty controlled place. I think a lot of people are glad to hear. Well, you know, to be anxious and to be concerned is a extremely rational response to the current situation. If you're not anxious, there's probably something wrong. You probably, you know, it's like the old saying that uh, anybody who says they understand the current situation is misinformed. If, you, if it doesn't make you anxious, you're probably misinformed <laughs> because it is anxiety provoking. Recently, I've been, I've been pretty relaxed because Vermont's doing so well in this epidemic and I'm not so worried that I'm going to end up on a ventilator for three weeks uh, and my family not be able to visit me and, and maybe die. Uh, but in any case, die alone in the hospital without my family being able to be there. That's, you know, a very scary prospect. And currently I'm not, you know, that's not keeping me awake at night. But if Middlebury was having five cases a day, which we're not, but if we were, I would be pretty anxious. Yeah. Well, either way, Richard, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about all this. Nice talking to you, Mike. Take care. You can find our series on the next phase of the pandemic in Vermont, starting Tuesday at vtdigger.org. And find all of our COVID-19 coverage at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice week.